You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Morning, TVC. Today we have the privilege of hearing from Joel Mutamale, uh, who I've known for several years now, uh, one of kind of the most gifted theologians, like God thinkers out there. Uh, so like I said, I've, I've interacted with him at conferences and, and, and watch and listen to him online. He's a gifted teacher of God's word. Will you guys welcome Joel to the stage? What's up? TVC, it is so, so good to be here uh, with y'all. I just need to say, um, for many, many years, I have looked at the Village Church and um, have had deep affection for what the Lord is doing here in this church. Uh, I've loved Pastor Matt uh, and the elders here. Uh, they just love y'all so much. And so it is an absolute honor uh, to be here with you this morning. Uh, we're going to dig deep into the text. And so if you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to Psalm 121. Here's the good news about uh, Psalms is you don't have to worry about going to the table of context in the beginning. I'm not telling you to go to Titus, right? Like, it's easy. You kind of open up to the middle if you've got a print Bible, and you can kind of navigate your way uh, to where Psalm 121 is. For all of y'all that are new school and you got your iPhone, it'll basically do it for you. If you've got an Android device, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. There is hope in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm just letting you know. Uh, a little bit of orientation, and we've got a special prayer for the one person that uh, celebrated in the middle right there. Um, I want to give a little bit of orientation to the psalm. Psalm 121 is uh, one psalm in a series of 15 psalms, and and they're typically referred to as the songs of ascent, Uh, the songs of ascent. And and these songs were used uh, by the people of God in specific ways. They were songs that reminded them of their past, of their history. Uh, It retells the story of the faithfulness of God in the midst of seasons of despair and and when things aren't going the way that they ought to go. And so there are two kind of primary ways in which these specific psalms uh, were sung and used. One is pilgrimage. There were seasons of the people of God where they did not live in Jerusalem. They were in exile. They lived all over the place. And so um, they would have to do, essentially, the ancient version of a road trip. And they'd go from one location to Jerusalem for these festivals, these feasts. And, And on the way, like anybody ever been on a road trip with your children? Yeah? That's called sanctification in our lives. So, I mean, it's a little, little tough, so we're trying to figure out what are we going to do. Now, I grew up in an age where we, like, played games and we had to read physical books, but now today, y'all, it's wild. These guys have their switches and their phone. They're doing all kinds of stuff, but, but one of the things that we would have normally done is sing songs or listen to songs, and, and you'd figure it out. Well, what did the Israelites do? They would camp at a location, and when they would camp, they might open up uh, their psalms, and they would sing, huh, what if we did Psalm 120 today? And they would, they would sing a song, and, and maybe that song retells the story of how the Israelites were saved from Egypt, but they actually ended up in front of a sea, and the sea in the ancient world was actually an image of chaos and destruction, and so they had metaphorical chaos and destruction in front of them, and they could hear the hooves of the Egyptians chasing them from behind. And here's Pharaoh who is physically about to destroy them, and they sing a song of the story of God parting the sea doing the unthinkable, the unexplainable, the miraculous, 
And they would sing these songs as stories of remembrance, of God's faithfulness and times of hopelessness. Here's another one I find it super interesting. If you went to Israel today, uh, the temple, one of my favorite places, there uh, is a transition from the outer court to the inner court. And when you go there, catch this, there are 15 songs of ascent, right? Guess what? There are 15 steps on the way into the temple. Now, so here's what the people would typically kind of do. Ancient rabbinic teaching teaches this, that, that they would have probably taken a step, and when they would take that step, they would stop, and they might sing Psalm 122 or 123, and, and they would pause. Now, some of you are stressed out already. You're like, Joel, steps are obstacles to overcome, right? I'm trying to get to the destination. I might skip a couple steps in order to get to where I'm trying to go. I, I love this, that the scriptures are consistently trying to Slow us down. It it matters equally the journey of how we get to the destination as it does to actually receiving and getting there. The slowness of scripture is a gift to us. And these psalms are intended to kind of slow us down and to think deeply of the story of God and how God has lived in the story of his people. So, so how are these, these psalms, these songs, how, how should we think of them? Here, here's kind of a phrase. These songs are songs of remembrance that are intended to reframe the mind, orient the heart, and direct the steps of the people of God. In other words, these are songs that speak to the entirety of what it means to be a human. And so today we're going to look specifically at Psalm 121, which uh, poses a very significant question. And here's what the question is. Where does our help come from? Where does our help come from? Now, y'all, I have found that the reality of my personal need for help has never been more real, more urgent than when I put my three-year-old down for bed. (laughs) It is chaotic, right? I've actually got a picture here of my family. And so uh, at this point, we've already had our three boys, our three boys. So we've got Liam, who's my oldest. He's actually here in the back. Uh, We've got Levi in the middle and then Lucas. And then three years ago on Valentine's Day, we welcomed our little girl, Amelia Jane. I call her MJ, named after the greatest basketball player of all time. There you go. Some of you are wondering, Joe, what about LeBron? I don't know. Who got swept in the NBA Finals this year? And there you go. God's people say amen. Okay. Um, so, so here's, we're kind of like pro-parents. I don't know about this, but like if you guys have heard, there's this, there's this incredible thing that, that God in common grace gave the brilliance to an individual to create, and it's called a pacifier. I mean, it's amazing. It is amazing. Now, people got different names for it, pacifiers, binkies, like all kinds of different things, passies. Now, uh, Amelia, uh, she calls it, MJ calls it her papa. This is her papa, okay? And so this is what we've kind of come to the conclusion, that there is a point in time where uh, you cannot have your papa 24-7, right? Like, you got to grow up at some point. So we've got to do the slow withdrawal of the papa. So during the day, no more papa. But at nighttime, the papa can come back and you can sleep with it for a season. Now, I'm just kind of learning all kinds of things. One is uh, bedtime with boys is awesome. You grab them, dunk them, take them back out, throw them on their way. They're good, right? 
like hashtag girl dad, this is, this is whole new thing. I got, we got different routines, she's got curly hair, so I got the curly shampoo for her, and there's this thing called conditioner, and so you gotta put the conditioner on the hair. I mean, it's a whole, whole thing, and so at the end of it, you know, you do the hair, and then she looks at me, and she'll typically say, uh, Dada, Papa, where is it? Now, I'm, a, I'm like a pro parent at this point. I, I know where the, where the papa is supposed to be, so I go to the cabinet where we keep the papa, and, and we go to the cabinet and open it up, and guess what's not there? The papa. My need for help is evident. <laughs> so I yell, babe, uh, papa, where is it? You know, and she yells back, Brie yells back to me, uh, papa, I don't know. <laughs> you know, and so she runs in, and, and at this point, MJ is stressed out. Because she looks at her dad, and she's like, my dad is literally helpless in this moment. And she expects when mama comes in that mama is going to be the, the answer, the helper, the rescuer. And mama comes in with no papa in her hands. And so now she's like, mama ain't going to help me. And so simultaneously, Britt and I will say, Liam, Levi, Lucas, papa, where is it? You know, it is Avengers Assemble moment. <laughs> So they run in and they're like, hey, dad, my, my oldest Liam, he's like a, like a very like consistent firstborn, very responsible, and, and he does like wise, understandable things. So for instance, he looks at the cushions and underneath the couches and, and in the little spaces and, and he comes back, he's like, dad, there is no papa, I have not found it. And MJ just stares at him, disappointed, shaking her head. And then Levi, my, my middle son, I call him my Leviathan. Any Hebrew scholars, you know what a Leviathan is. I'll just let that sit with y'all. All of a sudden, while Liam comes in um, and he's telling me this, I start to hear rumbling at the bottom of my feet. And, and here's what's wild, y'all. I live in Charlotte. We don't have basements. It's crawl space underneath there. And I'm wondering, why is there all of a sudden, Levi comes out. It's locked, by the way. How he got down there, we don't know. He goes, Dad. I looked at the entire crawl space. There is no papa down there. And I'm like, thanks for nothing, bro. Thank you. MJ looks at him and just shakes her head. No help there. And then all of a sudden, my youngest son, Lucas, walks in with a little bit of a swagger. And on bended knee, he lifts up and says, Papa, I found you. Boy, I know, we clapped and we cheered and we grabbed that papa and she was like, dad, no help, no rescue, mom, no help, no rescue, Liam, no help, no rescue, Levi, definitely no help, no rescue, Lukey, he was my help, he was my rescue. Now, it'd be interesting for us to just be like, oh, yeah, cool, like a three-year-old, of course, she's got some needs for help and rescue, but I don't have any needs for help and rescue. We're grown adults in here, right? Or like, like we've got all of our things together. Now, I find it super fascinating, I find it super fascinating um, that our society has actually created entire marketing plans and TV shows that poke at the very real need that you and I have as humans for help. There's a famous phrase many years ago that built its entire marketing plan around the slogan, help, I've fallen and I can't. Wow. Right? Now, I'm, a, I'm a Netflix binge watcher. I, I love watching Netflix. And, and one of the things that I'm super fascinated about is people who camp, people who camp in the wilderness. I'm Indian. We didn't camp. Right? <laughs> Ain't happening. So I'm like, why do these people go out into the... So there's a show called Alone. Anybody know about Alone? Uh, yes, exactly. Now, it's wild to me. These people go out and they, not, they can't, not, like, they don't even have friends. They do it alone. And then there are bears out there, wild animals, you know? And, and, the, and the people give them this device and it's just this little button. And they say, listen, 
If it gets too much, which it's gonna, I'm not even going there. If it gets too much, press the button and help will come. The entire show is built around of this idea that at some point you're gonna come to the recognition that you need help and, and that's what it comes. Now, it'd be easy for us to be like, wow, gosh, that's so new, that's novel. But, but friends, there is nothing new and there is nothing novel about this. The reality of humanity's need for help is one of the most intimate and important truths of the people of God from generations past. You see, the people of God have always been pilgrims living in the middle of the already, but the not yet. And living in the middle has always asked us some questions because the middle is a place of anxiety. The middle is a place of tension. The middle is a place of stress. It's wondering what happened behind me and and how is what's gonna happen before me, in front of me, going to pan out. The middle is quite messy. And we're wondering, where is our help going to come from? This is the ancient question of the people of God from the beginning when Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden. Where will our help come from? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 121, he helps to answer this question. And so here's the first thing that he says about our help and and our helper. He says that our help comes from the one who holds all power and all authority. So let's read this. Psalm 121 verse one, it says this. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? I want to pause here. Sometimes we just read the Bible really quick. You know, we're trying to get to the good stuff. We might read a phrase like that, like, um, I lift my eyes towards the mountains, and we might have a preconceived notion of what the mountains are, right? Uh, the mountains are places of power and, and places of stability, the, the hills, the mountains. It's, it's places of, of grandeur and, and, and glory, and there is a part of that. In fact, a lot of the Old Testament uh, points us to the truth of Mount Zion and the hope that comes from Mount Zion. But we have to also know that the ancient Israelites, when they would have lifted their eyes to the mountains or to the hills, they would have faced the complexity and the tension of the promise of Mount Zion, but the reality of hills that were adorned and crafted to be altars for counterfeit gods. So imagine the psalmist saying to you, lift your eyes to the mountains and you look up and all of a sudden you see an altar to Ishtar, the goddess of fertility. And you're just wondering, like, like maybe I got this longing to have children and, 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 and maybe, maybe the promise of children will be fulfilled by the counterfeit helper named Ishtar. Or maybe that another mountain is on the horizon and you see that there's an altar for Baal. Baal was the storm god. Both the rain and the lightning came from Baal. If you lived in the ancient world, like you needed these things in order to cultivate your grain and, and you're in a season of famine and you're wondering, well, maybe our help will come from Baal from, from on top of this mountain or our hill. And, and you're faced with this question, where will our help come from? And in fact, the way the Hebrew is written here in Psalm 1, it, it's actually, written in this way. I'm going to give you a little bit of a translation. If Joel was right, I'd be like, so really, y'all? Your help going to come from there? Really? Is your help going to come from Ishtar or Baal or Dagon or, or Molech? Are these counterfeit gods going to be counterfeit helpers that promise you prosperity and pleasure 
and lead you actually into places of devastation and destruction. Where is your help coming from? Psalmist answers it in verse two. He says it this way. My help comes from Yahweh, the Lord. Catch this. The maker of heaven and earth. Your help comes from the one who resides in Mount Zion. Your your help comes from the one who created all of these things with the power of his breath. This is where our help comes from. You see, I think there is this uh, intimate and innate danger that presents itself in the space between looking down, downcast and anxiety, and, and the, the imperative, the challenge to lift our eyes heavenward to God, it's in this tiny space that counterfeit helpers and counterfeit gods are presented to us, promising us, promising us hope, but leading us to further helplessness. So what do we have to do? Keep looking, keep lifting moving beyond the counterfeit gods and looking to the one who's truly trustworthy, the the creator of the heavens and the earth. You see, all these counterfeit gods and these counterfeit helpers are presenting to us subtle and simple deceptions that tend to be incredibly destructive. Now you're like, Joel, I don't see any shrines to Baal or Ishtar. Like, I don't go out and see that on the mountains. How does this land for me? How does this pan out for me? Well, there are counterfeit helpers and counterfeit gods that are presenting themselves to you consistently. And in the space between looking down and looking up, all of a sudden you take out your phone and and you see Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and, and you just have this thought, like maybe, maybe if I can be known and other people can know me, I will find satisfaction and hope. Maybe this will be my helper. For some of you, it's like, nah, I'm looking for money. Like maybe resources can create a sense of security and position um, and places and places of power. Or for other people, it's like, no, family and vocation. If I can just establish a sense of belonging and take the good things that God has given us and turn them into God things that, that we can bypass the creator for the created and we can find our satisfaction and our pleasure in those things. For other people, you're like, no, I'm just trying to get some education, some intellect. If I get the letters before my name or after my name, maybe that is gonna provide me with all the help and all the hope that I long for. And in this, there's a great God who's saying, it will not pan out. It might be pleasurable in the moment, but it's not going to last in the long run. That pleasure will turn into immense pain. And instead, there is a great God who who tells us that he's the king of the cosmos. Can you imagine being known and loved by Yahweh who created all things and he knows you by name? And he reminds us that, that any security and position or power that we're longing for can only be found in wrapping our life up in the life of Jesus. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What does that mean? You take Jesus out of the equation, it all falls apart. We are in desperate need of Jesus. Now I know, some of y'all are skeptics. I know, because I'm one of you. You're wondering, okay, Joel, so you're trying to tell me that there is a great God who is all-powerful, omniscient, he knows all things, but how can I be sure that he even cares about me? 
my situation and, and my circumstances? How, how could I even be sure of this? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because the psalmist has anticipated this before us. Let's keep reading. And here's the second idea, that our helper is not only near, but he is always aware. Verses three and four, it says this, that he, this is talking about Yahweh, he will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. I have this deep conviction that all the way throughout scriptures we find echoes. And in fact, often the way the biblical writers are writing is that they're writing in a way to make us recall and and recollect the past stories of God's people so we can find comfort in knowing the truth of who God is. And and you might wonder, well, why is it talking about our protector is not going to slumber or that he doesn't fall asleep. Well, actually, this is an echo all the way back to 1 Kings 18, 27 through 29. I love this passage. It's the prophet Elijah who, catch this, is on a mountain. Hmm. And on that mountain is an altar to the false god Baal. Hmm. And there is a war There's about to go down. And it's a challenge. It's a conflict Who is greater? The storm god, who is the god of rain and the lightning. I mean, this is set up for homeboy success. I'm just letting you know. Or Yahweh. This is what Elijah does. I'm going to give a little bit of my thoughts along the way. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He's my guy. Elijah is my guy. He mocks them. And he says, shout loudly, for he's a god. Oh, I, I get it, guys. Maybe he's just thinking it over. He's just contemplating the situation. Or maybe, actually, he's wandered away. He's, he might be on a road trip. He's on the road. Or perhaps he's sleeping, huh, and will wake up. Notice the response of the priests of Baal. They shouted loudly. And their desperation gets so high that, that they cut themselves with knives and, and spears according to their custom until blood gushed out all over them. All afternoon, they kept at this raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice. And the response here would have been debilitating for them. There was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now take that, and I want us to go back to Psalm 121, 3 and 4. Notice what the psalmist does. It's almost like you want to be thinking about the story in the back of your mind. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector is not asleep. He's not taking a break. He's not on a road trip. He is aware. He is present. He is active in your story and in your situation. And the word protector is so important. The psalmist wraps up this entire thing by by helping to declare and to define who Yahweh actually is. And this is our third thing. It's just that our helper is our protector. Let's look at verses five through eight. If you're taking notes or circling or highlighting, I just want you to circle or highlight every time the word protector, guard, depending on your translation, shows up. It says this, the Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. 
The Hebrew word here for protect is shamar. It means to guard or to observe, to keep watch. Here's something super fascinating. The very first time this Hebrew word shows up is in Genesis 2.15, when God gives the divine command to Adam and Eve to what? To shamar, to protect Eden. In fact, this word shows up later with uh, the Levitical priests is there to protect, to shamar the temple of God. It shows up again in Nehemiah with the watchmen on the wall who are to protect, to guard, to shamar the city of Jerusalem. You see, I think it's super fascinating that this word is used to describe the protection and the guardianship of Yahweh. I have a suspicion that the ancient Israelites, when they would sing this song, would have felt this reality that Yahweh was their protector in such a profound way because they may have even recalled and remembered the failure of their first parents in Eden to protect them. What we find here is a redemptive reversal. Yahweh, God, is our divine protector. It's super intriguing. It talks about how he protects us by day and how he protects us at night. Um, You see... uh, it recalls the wilderness story of the Israelites. Y'all, y'all remember the story, right? Like, like the Israelites are, are running for their lives. They get stuck in the wilderness. And, and it says that, that God protected them by leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of by night. Hmm, interesting. Uh, fire by night. Why fire by night? Well, because if you're in the wilderness and it's nighttime, you know what comes out at the nighttime? The critty crawlers. It's the scorpions and the snakes. One of the most devastating things that you're going to have is for a scorpion to sting you or for a snake to bite you. You are not running to the urgent care down the street. Be devastating. Well, what does Yahweh do to protect the Israelites? He's a pillar of fire. The language is he's a shelter around the people of Israel. Why? If the scorpions and the snakes are about to get his people, they got to go through him first. He will absorb the enemy. I love the daytime one that he is a cloud by day. Now, um, I, I found out very, I mean, y'all should understand this in Texas. I mean, my goodness, how hot it is here. I landed and I started melting. This is just unbelievable. You know? And then they told me it's actually been cooler. I'm like, cooler? You see, I'm, I'm, I'm Indian in, 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 in India around noon, like from noon to about three, four o'clock. Ain't nobody going outside for a walk in the day. No, they're taking naps or they're having some chai, like they ain't doing that. Why? It is too hot. It is brutal. I love this image. What happens? That God was a pillar of cloud by day. That the people of Israel, as they're walking in the wilderness, were consistently walking in the shade of the grace of God through the cloud that was above them. Have you ever noticed the, the unique thing? That you could be sitting outside, super hot. The sun is just, just destroying you. And you look down, you see a massive tree. And there's a shade underneath that tree. And it's the natural inclination for all of us to do what? To go under the tree. And what happens the second we step under the tree? The second we step under the tree, it's like 10 to 15 degrees cooler instantly. I have a question. Does the sun stop shining? No. 
Isn't it interesting how we are a people who love to experience the benefit of the tree without considering the consequence of how that tree gave us shade? Well, what's happening? The sun is still blaring. It's still a hot, fiery furnace. The difference here is that this tree is absorbing the full furnace of that heat in order to provide the shade that is underneath it that you and I can experience. The darkest day of human history, the four gospels, of all four, three of them, make this specific note that on the darkest day of human history where Jesus hung on the cross, the earth turned dark. And the cross is a tree that Jesus hung on. And I can't help but think on this day, the darkest day of human history, that Jesus absorbed the sin of the world, the full punishment of our iniquity and sin so that you and I might live in the shade of his never-ending and never-ceasing grace. And this is the truth for you and I today. We're in the shade of the grace of Jesus He absorbed the furnace of punishment on the cross on our behalf. And there is an invitation to take a step and experience the shade of his mercy and grace. Some of you are listening to this and and just like the ancient Israelites when they would have sung this song, they would have gone back to ancient memories of the truthfulness of God's faithfulness in their moments of hopelessness. And you're like, yeah, I remember just a couple months or a couple years ago where God was faithful in my life or in my family's life or in the life of my community and in this situation. And and you're like, yeah, Joel, some of this stuff, like that rings true. And then instantly there is this creeping doubt that covers your mind in, but is he still good? How can I know that the same God who was faithful in the past is gonna be faithful to me now in the present. It's been a while since I've experienced that. And to that, friends, I would just point you to a cross. I would point you to a tomb that is void of a body. I point you to Jesus, who right now sits at the right hand of the Father, who gave us the Holy Spirit to be our paraclete, our helper, who empowers us and who equips us. And some of y'all are like, I've been longing for this. I'm a skeptic. And I've walked into this space as a skeptic and and I'm open to the possibility, but, but it just feels too good to be true. And honestly, I cannot have another letdown. I just want you to know In the same way, if you're standing out in the sun and you're experiencing the dehydration of the heat, it is messing with you and you're like, I've gone beyond a good tan now. This is bad. (laughs) And you look over and you see a massive oak, huge. And you see the shade that's underneath the oak and you're like, man, I, I want that. All it takes is a step towards that oak and another step towards that oak. And then maybe at that third step, you experience the shade of grace that comes from that oak. Jesus is not going anywhere. He's right there 
and the shade of his grace and mercy is beckoning you and calling you and just saying, come and enjoy the grace that comes from me. Uh, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Back to the very beginning, we talked about how we are really pilgrims on a journey. And each of us are in different spaces on our journey. And Spurgeon, as he talks about this, he, he says it this way. What you and I need is help. Help powerful, efficient, constant. We need a very present help in trouble. What a mercy that we have it in our God. Our hope is in Jehovah, for our help comes from him. I love this description. He says this, that help is on the road, and it will not fail to reach us in due time. For he who sends it to us was never known to be late. Can you imagine the God who spoke all of existence into creation, the power of his voice, his breath, the one who created space and time and human history, that this God who created time, y'all cannot be constrained by time. There's a never moment, there's never a moment that God is late. He's on the way. He is ready, he's active, he's aware, and he is your help. Now I know some of you are like, well wait a minute, I'm in the middle of pain. I'm in the middle of despair. I'm in the middle of hurt. The promise of the help sometimes results in a relief from the pain and anxiety in the situation, but sometimes it doesn't. But what the promise always is, is the helper is with you in the midst of it. The helper is the one who will walk you through it. One of the most important propositions of the biblical languages is through It was necessary for the Israelites to walk through the wilderness. It was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. It was a requirement for Jesus to go through the cross. The story of the people of God is the story of walking through and knowing that the entire time we are not absent or void of our helper. He is our help. He is our protector. He is the one who guards and watches over us and protects us. One of the most powerful ways he does that is by walking with us through it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you're the God who is our helper and who is our protector. And what the ancient Israelites hoped for, today we, the people of God, can just look back to the cross and say, hope has a name, and that name is Jesus. God, I pray for those of us that are longing for help, that we'd be drawn to you to experience the the shade of grace that is waiting for us in the presence of the king of the cosmos, Jesus himself. Amen.